0: We're just moving too quick to cancel people, to ruin people's lives, to go by hearsay, to trial without a jury, trial without a trial, you know, to condemn people. I just think we need to slow down. And I, I really lament that social media has so much power. You know, it's just opinions. It's all opinions.
1: Patti Smith, rock and roll icon, godmother of New York punk, writer, writer. Artist, singer, maker of the legendary album Horses, writer of songs like People Have the Power, Dancing Barefoot, Because of the Night, author of the award-winning bestseller Just Kids, a memoir of her relationship with the photographer and artist Robert Mapplethorpe, friend of Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, Lou Reed, pretty much all the rock and roll legends of the last 50 years. I met Patty at Electric Lady Studios in New York. The studio is opened by Jimi Hendrix in 1970, just weeks before his death. We went upstairs and we sat alone in a room together and talked about life as an artist today compared to the 1970s. We talked about cancel culture and the problematic Picasso. We talked about famous friends who have come and gone. And we talked about why she considers herself a writer above all else. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Patti Smith. Patty
2: Smith, thank you so much for talking to me and being on, on The Active Voice. We're in an amazing place. We're in Electric Lady Studios, where you recorded horses and a bunch of other things. Yes. And I thought I might just start off by asking you what this place means to you.
0: Well, it, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's the soul of the recording industry. It's the house that Jimi Hendrix built And it's built uh, within um, a building that uh, has housed vaudeville music, has housed club music, has housed uh, the great painter and and, uh, teacher Hans Hoffman, uh, some of the action painters uh, or the abstract expressionists. And then Jimi Hendrix um, took it over, built the studio and had a beautiful vision. He really wanted to create get musicians from all over the world, record together, find a common language. And he believed that together, people from all over the world, musicians could create the language of peace through music. Like Beethoven, who believed, you know, music was uh, the language of God. So when I come in here to record, whether it's talking to you or um, doing a new song or whatever my task is, I'm always um, grateful, you know, to be here and conscious of its history and even my own history here. I, I recorded my first independent single Piss Factory uh, here in 74. So... I have a long history with the studio.
2: You were here for the opening, you were telling me, 1970? Yes,
0: (laughs) I was here for the opening in August uh, 1970. Jimmy was on his way to the Isle of Wight and he opened up the studio and had, um, that's how I know what his vision was because I got to meet him on the stairwell because I was too shy to go into the party. I was only around 22 or, you know, however old I was. You know, I was a little hesitant to go in, and he stopped and talked to me and told me that he was also shy, and we talked about his uh, vision for the studio. I never thought that I'd ever record. I had no thoughts of recording. I didn't imagine that I'd have a rock and roll band. I was (laughs) writing poetry, and then I wound up recording my my first album, and it, it always... It was sort of beautiful but heartbreaking when we started recording to realize that he had such visions for the studio, never got to realize them, mm. and here we were mm. in the same studio.
2: Did you feel some sort of debt to Jimmy being in yes, that space? Yes,
0: I felt a debt to his his vision. I felt a debt to the fact that he wanted to do new things, he wanted to break ground, he wanted to bring people together and I always feel that debt. And it's a good debt, though. It's not a burden. It's, it's a good one.
2: Do you agree with that sentiment that music is the language of the gods or the language of peace, whatever the phrase was?
0: Well, I mean, I'm, I am i don't adhere to any specific thing. Some people say that poetry is. Some people say dance. You know, I, I think they're all beautiful.
2: And in the past, you've said that if you had to choose between Music or well, between rock and writing, it wouldn't be a hard choice, and that you would go with writing. Am I interpreting that correctly?
0: No, that's right. I mean, I love really love performing, and I love the connection with the people, and I feel privileged to have uh, recorded like twelve albums. But always since I was a child, I wanted to write. I've always loved books, and uh, you know, the, I could live, and as I've already proved it to myself. I can live without performing. I can live without uh, creating records, but I can't live without writing. I write every day. You know, something. I wrote this morning before I met you, and I. It's it's part of who I am. It's part of my daily practice. And uh, what does
2: it what does it do for you?
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I have a very active mind, and it allows me to, um, you know, it's like. A, a river of stories and a torrent sometimes of stories and thoughts and ideas. And it allows me to, um, you know, to, uh, you know, empty myself and give them to others. But it just makes me happy. It makes me feel like I've, I'm contributing something. And sometimes, even though it might sound conceited, sometimes I write stuff that I just like reading. I'll write some, I'll write to entertain myself if it, uh, because I only publish maybe maybe a tenth of what I write. So a lot of my writing is just keeping up with the craft of writing, um, developing my skills, just writing because my imagination is flowing into my pen. And some of it is just a learning process, writing the same paragraph sometimes 15 times till you get it where you want it to be. You know, a lot of writing is excruciating, mm. uh, laborious, and tedious, and uh, but sometimes it's just exhilarating. Like you know, how it must have you know, all creation is exhilarating, whether it's painting or you know, you come upon a lyric or improvise in front of you know thousands of people, and that you just you can tell you're 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 on a roll. You know, it's. It's uh, it can be very exciting and it can be a great burden. That can be. <laughs>
2: what do you What do you mean by burden?
0: Well, it's sometimes, you know, if like because writing has such always been such a part of me, it makes it hard to just live, you know. Also, like if you're a photographer, you just want to look at the desert or you want to, you know, walk down the street, but you can't help. Freezing this moment or taking this shot because you're compelled to do it. You see the shot and so you can't just simply walk down the street, you know, or writing. I could be at a party or I could have, I can be at the opera. I can be somewhere where I really want to be, but it something triggers my mind. So I always keep a notebook in my pocket, sometimes writing in the dark and often uh, things I can't decipher because I'll write <laughs> words on top of words. But sometimes I just, I'm so grateful to have a, a vocation that I've had and chose very early in life. But every once in a while, I just wish I could just, you know. Till? Pre- I could just <laughs> proceed. <laughs> I could just not, you know, want to turn everything into something else. But that's what artists do. Robert Maplethorpe and I used to talk about that. I remember once, you know, we had no money and we were walking somewhere at night and someone had left a pair of alligator shoes. I don't know if they stole them or what brand new, really expensive, beautiful, glowing alligator shoes on the sidewalk. And Robert, we stood there and looked at them and we had this little game and I'd say, life or art? And he said, if they fit me both, (laughs) which just meant... Was he going to put them in an installation?
2: Mm. What was it? Did they fit him?
0: Well, they were a little big, but he stuffed a lot of toilet paper at the end of them and he wore them occasionally. But then they found their way into an installation. But um, yeah, we used to have that that little game,
2: life or art, you know. (laughs) And you walked in here with a notebook and apparently I scheduled this interview and during your usual daily practice of writing time, does that mean you're writing uh, like in- pen and paper most of the time
0: oh yeah i, I always write yeah i write by hand see, there's, yeah you know,
2: wow and, beautiful uh, beautiful handwriting for people who can't see this which is everyone <laughs> very tidy all the way through and tight
0: yes i'm a, i have really nice handwriting yeah. but it's i worked at it but i was also raised in you know early you know early 50s and penmanship was an important part of our education right i learned how to write with a uh nib you know quill oh wow and, and uh an inkwell. And uh, till I was in second or third grade, then we went to pencil.
2: What was that transition like? I know that's a random question, but going from quill writing to pencil writing. Well,
0: <laughs> less, less ink on my clothing because <laughs> I was very sloppy, but I was very taken with that. Um, I wasn't really skilled at first with that. Um, it's very hard to get just the right amount of ink in, in your nib. But later, you know, when I got a little older, I would try to copy the Declaration of Independence because that's why I have such good handwriting because I wanted to write like that. You know, I'd look at these... Um, oh, the, the visual style Yeah, the visual. It. it was a visual thing, yes. But I write in my notebooks and then transcribe them later. Or Actually, I hate transcribing, so um, Lenny Kay helps me. He's always helped me transcribe because he's a really fast typer. And Lenny Kay, of course, is the my guitarist, my guitarist right. and great friend for half a century. Right. And even in the 70s, he would um, sometimes I would write orally and we would sit and he would just type it out.
2: Oh, wow. What a great friend.
0: Yeah. He's, um, you know, we have different ways of helping one another. And for instance, I'm working on a book and uh, I write every day. And then in the afternoon, I call him and he gets his computer and he. Uh, I read it to him over the phone because he's in Pennsylvania and then he sends me the document and then I I can edit it. So, you know, I used to transcribe my own things and occasionally I do, but I'm really slow and it's very, I find it tedious and it makes me lose interest. You know, I like to edit on the computer because mm-hmm. then I don't have to write the same paragraph over and over and over. I can see it.
2: In different forms. Why do you think he does that? Why does he do that for you?
0: He's my friend. <laughs> well, because he knows, uh, I mean, we started doing that in 77. I had a really bad accident and I was mm. unable to. Is this when you
2: fell off
1: the yeah, stage? Yeah, I had a
0: spinal accident and right. I'd like fractured several bones in my spine and uh, I couldn't do anything. Right. And I got my first big poetry book. I got like to do a a major poetry book. And um, I couldn't write. So I had to figure out how to, uh, we didn't have any money. And so it was a way to, I think I was gonna get a $5,000 advance, which was a lot of money then. So Lenny would bring his typewriter and sit by my bed. And he would sit there because I I couldn't figure out what to do because my mind was working fine. And I just orally, I did a book called Babble, and uh, it was my first big poetry book. And Lenny just sat there and typed out, you know, he'd smoke a little pot, and then we'd, you know, sit there. Get into a the flow state. I'd be laying there and, and uh, babbling away.
1: Hmm.
0: And then we just, um, you know, he just became the person who did that. Uh, when we'd write manifestos, I'd write them by hand, and he'd type them out. Uh, I'm just such a slow typer. Hmm. You know, I typed all, a lot when I was younger, but in my own time, you know, yeah. but he's a speed typer. Right. You know, he was like one of these people that I don't know how he does it. He just flies, mm-hmm. but he does it because we do things for each other. You know, we we both excel in different things. And so we, we help one another. In a way, it's a lot like writing songs. I mean, we wrote a lot of songs together, Ghost Dance and Free Money and Jubilee and Fuji Sun. I mean, lots and lots of songs. And it's sort of the same, you know. He writes the chords and I write the words. And so it's just uh, a different way to collaborate.
2: I have a naive question for you, which makes me seem a little silly, I think. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. I'm 41. You turned 76 not not so long Mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. And you've had this relationship with him. Like Lenny was with you for your first poetry recital. Since
0: February 71. Yeah.
2: So my naive question is, what's it like to have a friendship like that, that's spanned the decades and has been so close and collaborative?
0: Well, it's 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 great. I mean, the best part about it is he's alive because I was fortunate. I mean, I would have had uh, the same. I met Robert Maplethorpe before Lenny, Sam Shepard before Lenny. I collaborated with both of them and uh, imagined I would know them for my whole life, hmm. you know. And later, my husband. Um, I've lost a lot of people that I really loved and had a strong relationship with and a collaborative relationship. So I'm so grateful that Lenny and I were only three days apart. We were both born in late December of 46. And um, it's just, we have, it's not just collaboration, a shared memory. Hmm. He knew Fred, he knew Sam, he knew Robert, he knew all my children, you know, so I have a friend that's still with us that we have shared memory. So we're, we're both that to each other. Hmm. And also you have so many references, you have so many references, you only have to say one or two words mm-hmm. that make no, nothing, you know, I might say, Ugh, baby sauce. And we'll both start laughing <laughs> because it means it has so many layers of meaning,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and also, you know, it's just, uh, even though we help each other, it's, um, you know, friendship at its best is both, uh, you know, people are mutually helping each other, but it's also unconditional, we don't have meters, like who's helping who the most or, you know, it's it's not like that.
2: What's it like to, you You mentioned a, a list of people and that's only a partial list of people you've been very close with who have died. And, you know, another one is your brother, Todd, yes. and uh, your pianist, Richard. How do you go through so much of that and how does it affect how you see life?
0: It doesn't affect how I see life, I don't think. I mean, I, I live my life. I understand, you know, the, the whole package. I mean, as soon as you're old enough to understand, part of the package of life is you will also die. So I understand the package and, you know, accept that. Losing my people, it's different with, with all of them because they each person might have provided different things, Sometimes I feel like the regret, like my pianist, Richard Soule, he was the best accompanist I ever had. You know, he just, he didn't write music or write, but he anticipated on piano every move I made. He was like Billie Holiday's Teddy Wilson, you know? And it makes me sad because my husband loved working with him. We all loved working with him. He was beloved Mm. and uh, he was beautiful and he was beloved you know, it's still, I have my bass player, Tony Shanahan, actually, he plays everything, has worked so hard to give me some piano accompaniment with a person I'm comfortable for with. But Richard is, you know, we all hail Richard's memory. And um, with my husband, it's it's too much to talk about. It's unfathomable how much losing him has impacted my life, you know. And um, also having, you know, two children, young children when he passed away. And my brother, you know, missing Robert, because Robert and I would have kept, Robert and I would have done so many things, you know, so many, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I look around at the landscape of, you know, all these people and the work they would have created independently and things we would have done on our own. Uh, Sam Shepard actually lived the longest. And, you know, I always Sam and I always imagined we'd grow old and be like, you know, old Samuel Beckett characters writing <laughs> away until we were 90. Mm-hmm. I really expected that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's uh you know, I've kids who are awesome and I've new friends which I'm grateful for, but I don't know. You just I'm I'm grateful to be alive. I love being alive. I love working and 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 seeing new things, I still have great enthusiasm for new work, new films people make, new books people write, whatever I can possibly do. So, you know, I guess it all comes down to gratitude. You know, you just, like, have to go through each day thinking what you have to be grateful for that day. And I have a lot. My mother always taught us, you know, the value of relativity, she had. She always said this thing. I've said this before, but it's like ingrained in my mind. When I was a kid, my shoes were in ill repair and my family didn't have any money to get me a new pair of shoes. And uh, I was uh, maybe sad about that. And my mother said, I wept because I had no shoes. And then I saw a man who had no feet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I just looked at her and I was like, I don't know how old I was, maybe seven or eight. And I was like, "Oh, it, it permeated." But her whole thing is: no matter what you think one lacks, you don't have enough food, or whatever you think your strife is. There are people out there who wish they were as lucky as you.
2: So, yeah, that this this statement you said, "I love living," is very simple, but it's actually something. That's easy to take for granted, or that people don't give much thought to. But is that something you consciously cultivate?
0: Well, I don't need to cultivate it, it just is. I mean, I was, you know, in fact, one of my favorite lines in all of rock and roll is, um, a Jimi Hendrix's line, Hooray, I wake from yesterday! Hooray, I wake from yesterday! I uh, was just like, I love that, you know, it's just, um. Like R.E.M.'s uh, song, It's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine. Mm -hmm. Another great line. You know, and I just think of these two lines because, one, I'm sort of old-fashioned and I do mourn a lot of the changes in our world and how cultural changes and just all kinds of changes. But um, Things are not
2: exactly (laughs) peachy right now.
0: Well, it's also just how change, you know, economic change, Mm -hmm. architectural change. It could be anything. But I these two these two lines, you know, Michael's line and Jimi Hendrix's line, they're two good mantras.
2: Hmm. Back to the writing for a bit. You had to. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe, uh, but it seems like you had to fight to be a writer a little bit because when you were young, you had some eye trouble or health issue that made it so it was physically difficult to write and read your, your own writing. And you had to write the letters backwards and upside down. Is no, that I,
0: no, I did write, I mirror wrote because I had such a, um, I forget the name of it, but I, I have like a severe lazy eye muscle in my right eye. And uh, when I was young, I had to wear an eye patch because it was so, I had like lizard eyes, you know, They, but yeah, that made writing itself frustrating, but not thought, mm. you know, so, I would make up stories in my head. I was too young to. The idea that stories would evaporate if you didn't write them down didn't read, you know, I hadn't thought of that yet. I wasn't I made up stories in my head all the time, and if I lost one, there was a new story. So no, my struggles weren't really that. My struggles are just because I'm not I was very resistant to learning mechanics, um, grammar sentence structure, all the things that we had to do. I, I just, I just, my mind could not uh, grasp all of that. And it, it all seemed spelling all these things that I made mistakes on in my papers or stories we had to write for school. I would always get a great mark in uh, imagination and a fair <laughs> mark in execution. And to this day, I, I have to, I'm much better but I have to sometimes go to a dictionary or go to a thesaurus or just read other people's sentences to see how how do you use a semicolon? Because uh-huh. I can't quite. No one knows I, how to use a semicolon. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's really everything with me. I can't say that I was, you know, I've never been a prodigy, you know, it's just, I'm not a prodigy. I, I've known them, <laughs> but I have a strong will and I am a hard worker and I've a good imagination. So yeah, you know, it's taken me years and years and years of daily practice to get to a point where I am now where I feel I'm happy with my writing. I mean I still struggle with it. Mm. I still struggle with saying exactly what I mean or going through the various choices, especially with poetry. I poetry drives me crazy. That's why I don't even write it so much. But I, I, Sometimes I can't resist, but the amount of choices that we have in this coded language, sometimes it it makes me, you know, crazy. I feel like I wish I could write four parallel poems at the same time because my mind is seeing four different ways constantly to say
2: the same thing. How are you choosing what to spend time on when it comes to writing these days? Because you're putting out, you're still writing books, you serialize the, The Melting, which is about... The pandemic's experience, and you've written a a bunch of other books. You wrote wrote this legendary book, Just Kids, about your relationship with Robert Maplefloor. Is there any conscious choice? You just go with the flow? Well,
0: I try. I mean, I try to. I'm trying to write a book right now, which is, you know, a book like it's another memoir, and that's really important. I've been thinking about this for the past few years, and I keep interrupting myself, like during the pandemic. The melting, I haven't even finished the melting on my (laughs) Substack because I have pages and pages that I have to, I just have to pull it together and end it. I know how it's going to end, Mm. but it's like the labor to do it. And also it became very upsetting because as I was writing it so much about climate disasters in time, the disasters I was writing about as nonfiction, I mean as fiction, were happening and worse right in front of my, and I, I right. it started making me actually feel sick. Yeah. So I just had to, my poor uh, subscribers, they're very patient. But then the same thing. I, I'm trying, I saw this movie, The Green Knight, awesome movie that inspired me to write a very long Sebaldian poem called Green. And I'm trying to write that. I'm going to publish it first on my Substack. Oh, awesome. And, uh, But my uh, readers are condemned to, um, you know, have to go through my lengthy process and sometimes the fact that that poem is now interrupted by another thing that came into my head and then I'm writing another thing. Uh, Like in this notebook, I'm trying to just stay, use the notebook to write about one subject, but already it's been permeated (laughs) by an insane story that was probably prompted because i watch a lot of these um korean uh dramas you know these long series they're like like, the soap operas well they're like from like i don't know what century 16th century i don't know but they're um like historical but they're uh there's one called alchemy of souls and it's as good as the title Mm. you know and it's like they've great great actors. Just such great stories that are like romance and fantasy and and uh skills and martial arts and uh all you know sorcery, but it's all you know so beautifully laid out and uh so I think I wound up starting to write a story like that as I'm trying to write about you know nineteen sixty four so it was mm-hmm it's it's challenging it's challenging cuz i i i've always found it difficult to s- just do one thing
2: what part of your life is this memoir focused
0: on it's a lot of it is uh childhood but i don't want to talk about that one because i really need not to talk about it just do it but i'm always working on multiple projects i just uh that's just how i am it's just like vocations I've often said I wish, you know, I could be like Joan Mitchell. She was a painter, you know, a great painter. And she said that once, "Well, I'm a painter. That's what I do. That's all. I'm just a painter." And if I could just say that, I'm just a writer hmm. or I'm just a performer or, you know, I'm just a gardener. <laughs> but I have, you know, multiple vocations and all seem that they call on me for at different times. So, but I try to fit as much in as possible
2: you're doing quite a good job of that (laughs) (laughs) this podcast is about how you know writers lives and work are affected by the internet and when i think of patty smith at least 10 years ago when i thought of patty smith i wouldn't have thought she's going to be an internet person she's going to be on instagram she's going to be on (laughs) Substack. and i wonder like how that came into your life
0: well i don't really i mean for me i know that they're within the internet Mm -hmm. but because i'm not really I don't really engage much in the internet, and I I never really did. You know, I've like no Twitter, or no this or that.
2: Never, never start a Twitter. That's, that, that would be no. The I answer. never
0: actually. I have. This is really a funny, sort of a stupid story, but it's true. When I did an album, like maybe ten years ago, I don't know when Twitter started, but I didn't have any idea what Twitter. I didn't have any idea what any of these things were because I just I had no internet consciousness and uh the the publicist wanted me to uh at my record company they had young people and they wanted me to start a twitter account i had no idea i said i don't want to do that i don't want to i don't want to have it it's not my thing and they said all right and i said i don't even know how to do it and they said you just have to write down 18 characters so i thought oh. so one night i thought 18 characters okay so i <laughs> i wrote down 18 characters ahab pinocchio <laughs> Peter Pan. I was thinking, well, this could is this be a true Is this a true story? This is a true story. Because no one, I had no idea, never saw a Twitter and I thought 18 characters. So I thought it was maybe some kind of thing where you introduce characters and maybe you had to say something. I
2: That's a much better version of Twitter. I wish that one existed. So
0: <laughs> I, I wrote them and sent them in and it was just like, when it came down to when I figured out and they explained to me what it was and i said this is like writing haiku poetry i tried it like once or twice and i said i can't do this i just i just can't do it i'm not i don't want to talk to people with 18 words you know it's like and also i don't want them talking to me i just i just yeah. uh, so i never did that i only did instagram because my daughter has an instagram and she i had no idea there there was this whole jungle out there good and bad. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, there's a lot of people because you're not claiming your name Mm -hmm. who are claiming your name. And some of them are actually soliciting people for money Mm. and, you know, giving a telephone number and saying, you know, I'll I'll talk to you personally for this amount of money. Mm. These poor people. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so she said, I should start my own and get a blue check. And then people would know it was mine. And get rid of all the imposters. She showed me how to do it, and it was really sort of up my alley because all I had to do was show a picture, and I take pictures all the time. I've taken thousands of pictures, mm. <laughs> and it, it could be a Polaroid, or it could be a it could be a picture that you took, you know, out in the street, or and write a little something. So I thought, well, that's that could be nice, mm. and actually. Yes, I'm involved in the internet, but always in my own way. I started my Instagram. I made it my own way. It looks my own way. And my preoccupations are my own. And I don't allow or I just get rid of when people are provocative or want to start fighting or politically or want to try to sell, you know, um, some kind of, you know, shares in something or (laughs) offering people money I try to keep it clean. Mm. It's not always possible, but I try to keep it clean.
2: You've got a million people following you on Instagram now. Yeah, I
0: don't. <laughs> I don't know how that. Had, my my daughter was my first, and I said, "Oh, Jesse, that's so nice. I I have a follower." She said, "Yes, it's me, mommy." But it's gonna it's, it's gonna, gonna change. <laughs> Before we knew it, it grew so fast. You know, I was really surprised. And then the pandemic happened, and I felt I felt like the thing that I like about my Substack and my besides them being creative outlets and my Instagram. When the pandemic started, I was supposed to go on a world tour with my band. It had been planned for a year. We were going everywhere from Australia to, you know, everywhere, Europe and Scandinavia, a whole year. And uh, it was shut down like days, only days before. I mean, literally days, like March 20th, I think everything was shut down and we were supposed to go on the road like... March 25th or something. It, but it was like that, all of a sudden the door was slammed. My, so suddenly, you know, I was 73 or whatever and uh, um, with a bronchial condition, which is chronic and I've had it since a kid. And so I was high risk. Uh, yeah. So I went from going to see the world with my little suitcase to being totally confined mm-hmm. and also going from, you know, as a writer, it's very solitary, but when I'm on the road, that's my public life. That's when I'm engaging with the people, and all of a sudden, I was confined, and really confined, to saw nobody but my daughter.
2: For how long? For two years. Wow! Till you know, in the prime of your life as well, Penny. <laughs>
0: yeah, in the prime of my. <laughs> so, um, yeah, two years. We had no work, and it kept filtering on to the third year. But I found having you know doing the small interaction there is with the Instagram, and then the, certainly the Substack, having people comment, not in a mean way or putting things down or, or misinformation, but talking about things like writing or you know maybe a little childhood recollection or even just giving me a compliment, whatever. Whatever it is, it kept me engaged with the people in the world. My connection in the internet to me in terms of my own contribution to me has been, it's not going to change the world, uh, not going to, you know, break any barriers, but it does give people a place where they're going to uh, either be entertained aesthetically or just because I'm reading them Uncle Wiggly or, <laughs> you know, taking them on some little shaggy dog excursion, which I will do, or, in, or sitting there with my cat yeah. or suggesting... Really great books that might be a little obscure and uh, translations.
2: Another cool thing you've you've done is take the like give people a look behind the scenes when you're on tour, like a a tour of the quarters you're staying in or the like backstage (laughs) area, which is nice and it's hard to access for normies like me. No, it it feels like you're in communion with people. No,
0: I like to do that, but also show them like my process. Uh, I'm gonna start this thing for my subscribers. I sort of started it with green with this poem i was joking that i was had the my my little symposium my writers symposium and one of the one of the uh, comments was from somebody named frederick w i think and he said it's a smithposium and i thought that's great so now i'm starting my smithposium <laughs> and one of the things that i want to do this week is uh just for instance show my subscribers how a song is written Oh, awesome you know where the idea came from, How, a song I wrote myself, which I don't write a lot because I... From the uh,
2: archives, you mean, or a, a No, new I song. just would do it. Okay. Well, it,
0: you know, it could be an archive unless I'm writing a song, mm. but also writing a new poem. I'm, t- I'm showing them the process of writing this darn poem green. I showed them my notebook pages and then, oh, I worked out the one part that's the prose part and then I type it out for them and I read it for them mm. just so they can be in semi-real time, see the process. But I was thinking, like, a song I wrote myself, my Blakeian year, for instance. It would be nice to tell them how I wrote it, you know, what uh, inspired me to write it, how I figured the chords, and then perform it for them. You know, just, uh, just because a lot of people ask me that. How do you write a song? How is writing poetry different than writing lyrics? I could show them.
2: I saw some footage from your 76th birthday show in Brooklyn and you're extremely energetic up there and playing a pretty arduous show <laughs> and it struck me that you don't have to do this. You could be you could be just chilling out. You could be enjoying a quieter sort of life, but you it, it, something obviously drives you to do it. What is it?
0: I like performing. I like it also gives my people work. It also gives me a chance to play with my son, who's a great guitarist, and uh, you know, just to, to see the people. But in terms of the level of performance, it's just what I do. You know, it's like I've always been an energetic performer. But I mean I'll do a ballad. I, I once covered Rihanna's song Stay. It was okay. <laughs> I just loved it so much. I couldn't resist trying to sing it. I mean I love um doing very quiet songs or sometimes Tony and I will just do a song like a Neil Young song with just piano. But if I'm playing rock and roll, I'm the same person. Obviously, I don't have, you know, all the, I'm, I don't have maybe the physical dexterity that I did when I was younger. But, you know, there's an aspect of me that is like an old punk rocker. You know, I'm not, I'm not an accomplished musician. I think I'm a, a strong performer. But if I get in a certain mood or if I'm agitated, I'm very similar to what, the way I was when I I was in my 20s when I would put my foot through an amplifier because I was so pissed. But I, I don't know. I just, like I said, if I could just be a writer and just, you know, sit at my desk and gaze at the sea and write my books, that would be fine. But sometimes I just feel compelled to go out there and, you know, commune with the people.
2: What's it like being an artist and writer and performer in 2023 compared to 1973?
0: I can't really say that because our our culture has changed. When I was younger, you know, we really wanted to break new ground and, uh, you know, create space for new generations. And, you know, I feel that I, you know, somewhat accomplished my goals, but I don't have those same goals now. That's for new generations to do. Mm. I mean, at this point, when I perform, I want the people to have, I'm thinking about the night in itself and how they can have a transformative night and how they can leave feeling better or more, you know, with more resolve or with more energy than when they came in. So I don't have any uh, cultural goals as a performer. You know, it's it's different because I'm not part of the uh, our present culture. I'm within it, and I will con- contribute to it, but I'm not building the future. You know, I'm hopefully... Some of the work that I've done and continue to do will be instructive, you know, but um, it was 50 years ago when, you know, we wanted to change the world. And, you know, we did, I think that my generation accomplished a lot and uh, certainly culturally and artistically. And, you know, we had some, you know, just Neil Young. I mean, you can Bob Dylan, all these people, they're all, all these people are either my age or just a few years older than me. Hmm. You know, I, I know that we did good work, but then in the same generation, Donald Trump and I are the same age. Uh, so you have that to configure.
2: He's less of a good
0: <laughs> Well, I'm saying that my generation, our culture, and our, I mean, we've always been divided. We've always been divided, whether it's politically, culturally. Some of those divisions, you know, happen because people are different and some are because, you know, There's good and evil in the world. I just want to do my work. When I perform, my goal is the people have a great night. My responsibility is to them, Mm -hmm. you know. But as a writer, I'm trying to do something much more. If I can do something that is more uh, inclusive, you know, that reach all kinds of people, all kinds of generations. So I have dreams for writing something, something great if I can, that's where my aspirations go uh, in, in terms of trying to still make some kind of impact mm-hmm. is in my writing.
2: Do you think it would be a, a, a book or a long piece of work? It would be a book, a yeah. Thing? <laughs> I'm, uh, is it well, the book I'm, you're working yeah, on now? I'm, this, I'm
0: yeah, I'm working on it. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's my main secret, not so secret goal mm-hmm. is to like do at least one book and maybe one more record that would be of worth I don't have any desire to just throw a record together, you know, because why? I'm not uh, compelled to do that. But if I have it in me to give one more thing that I think is worthwhile, I'll do it.
2: It feels like a lot of pressure to put on yourself.
0: No, I mean, it's not. It's just, it's it, it's no more pressure than a dream, you know. It's 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 a vision, you know. The pressure is always, for me, it's like... Finishing something like I feel sometimes, uh, if I feel pressure, it's like I like this poem that I want to finish. <laughs> this one poem, green, I, that's like pressure because I feel that I owe it to the people that I've promised that I would give it to them. So it's a deadline pressure, but it's self imposed. But I don't feel pressure in wanting to do something of worth. I mean, all things are of, of worth, but I, I'm, I've i never been you know, a commercial artist. I'm not a pop star. I don't write bestsellers, at least I didn't I mean. mean to. <laughs> yes. I did write a bestseller accidentally, but I didn't write just kids to be a bestseller. I wrote it to fulfill my vow to Robert that I would write it, and I thought it would be like a little cult book. I never expected that book to become beloved, really, and I'm very grateful for that. But to me, that's... That's what it's all about, you know. Why not? If you're going to do something, why not try?
2: What do you think about the state of culture today and arts and the art? And I'm thinking here of the influence of um, social media, which has had a huge effect on how people consume culture.
0: Well, I think, I mean, I'm not a expert on this. I'm not, you know, an analyzer. I mean, I try to stay away from that consciousness. I find it just a bullying aspect of culture. And it's... uh,
2: The social media side of things, you mean?
0: A lot of it, Mm -hmm. yes. And also the way they look at art and the way they Mm -hmm. want to reinvent art or the way, uh, you know, like there's constant argument about Picasso. They want to... There's been a lot of talk about taking down Picasso paintings because he was abusive to women. It's just... You know, taking things out of the context of their history, when things happened, what we can learn from the way historically things were or women's place in society. Yes, we have to uh, evolve. It's important to evolve. But, you know, Picasso was one of, I mean, he was the greatest artist of the 20th century. He gave us Guernica, the greatest, the most important anti-war work of art that's been done. I don't know. I didn't know Picasso. I don't know how he was with his wives and girlfriends, but uh, they all became goddesses through his work. I know a lot of people that are related to him. All of them feel privileged to have his blood in their veins, and I, I just think, you know, this whole idea of, um, you know, changing words and books because they're they make one uncomfortable or taking. The rape scenes out of the metamorphosis it's not just dangerous it's you know you, you start there and where do you where do you finish you can go into the bible and there is a lot of bad stuff in the bible <laughs> you know injustice and 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 rape and uh you know and exploitation of the young i mean i can't imagine someone you know the people that think they're going to they, they need to crucify Gauguin, or they need to crucify this person. I'm not saying these people haven't done bad things. Let history be there to examine and study. Because if you don't study it in itself, in the reality of itself, and you want to judge it with today's awareness, that awareness perhaps didn't exist then. Mm-hmm. I'm not a sociologist. I just think that We have to be able to examine history because if we don't, you know, examine history and and especially the history of artists or someday the history of rock stars, they'll like want to ban all their music because a lot of the guys were like assholes. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of our great uh, people, you know, they had groupies, they were maybe, you know, whatever, maybe they were jerks, but Mm -hmm. they changed, you know, they gave us culturally all this music, are we going to stop listening to a whole aspect of rock and roll, or we're not going to listen to this heavy metal band, or we're not going to listen to this, because this guy was, I i, I don't know when it'll stop.
2: And this happens with one of your songs, right? There's, I, I won't say the word that's I don't want to talk about it. Okay, okay. It does seem like one of the central discussions of this time, like how do we deal with these questions in the culture? Is there anything that gives you hope, any optimism on that?
0: Well, I mean, I think that awareness and being open to each other is really important. I mean, all right, let me put it in a different way. I'm always optimistic. You know, I, I just refuse to be pessimistic. Pessimism breeds nothing. Hmm. A pessimistic person does not create anything. You know, a, a pessimistic person does not envision anything. It's not that I feel pessimistic. I just feel that people are m- moving too quickly via social media not examining everything, you know, in a cubistic way, (laughs) not examining all the facets of things, not trying to understand how certain things fit in the context of the history that happened, you know, or, or when they happened. And if a man or a woman is not perfect, even if they did, you know, you look at somebody like Thomas Jefferson, who you know, with, with a little help from Thomas Paine, uh, wrote some beautiful documents, like the Declaration of Independence. He himself, knowing that he could not even live up to it and hoping that men in the future would live up to it, he was not the perfect man, but he gave us some important thoughts, some beautiful thoughts. And I think it's important to take the good of things. And uh, he knew his own failings, Thomas Jefferson, of all people, should have freed all his slaves, should have never had them. And he knew that, but living in the culture that he did, well, he didn't do that. What can, When I say Thomas Paine would never have had—he was more the perfect man, but Thomas Paine wound up being reviled because he spoke against the church. Thomas Paine, you know, nobody would even accept them in their graveyard. His body was lost because nobody would bury him. And yet he gave us the rights of man. He gave us common sense. A lot of his thoughts were, you know, again, used in the Declaration of Independence. We're just moving too quick to cancel people, to ruin people's lives, to go by hearsay, to trial without a jury, trial without a trial, you know, to condemn people. I just think we need to slow down. And I, I really lament, that social media has so much power. You know, it's just opinions. It's all opinions. Yeah. You know, it's
2: just like random people saying things on the street.
0: But even if you have bad journalists, if you have like a journalist who aren't real journalists or just, I mean, that's the other thing that's happened to our culture. You know, journalism has really gotten in certain ways, you know, painfully diluted. Is that the word? It's just. I read certain things and think this is not investigative reporting. This is poor reporting. There is a lot of facts. I read things about myself mm. or pe- Robert Maplethorpe or things people write. I think where did they get this stuff? Mm. They got it from somebody else who wrote something that wasn't that was filled with like hearsay or some stoned person said this or that. It's gotten very poor, mm-hmm. you know, um, investigative re- reporting or writing, mm-hmm. even about rock and roll. I mean, you still, whatever you're writing about, you know, to get the closest to the bone of the truth is is important and not as entertaining sometimes, but I'm not really, we need people within the culture that can speak out about their own culture to speak about it in a good way and about other ways. I think that what we need from each generation is to look, what are you going to contribute? And that's one of the things that we have to remember that each generation, it's not like what you can get for yourself or the fame and fortune you can get for yourself or the amount of followers or you know the amount of Grammys or the amount of this. It's what are you going to contribute uh, to the canon of art, music, literature, film, for the future? What are you doing for the future? And philanthropy. So, they're my uh, inarticulate thoughts.
2: I appreciate them. <laughs> I'm sorry for dragging you into this. Swamp you know, a little I bit. I feel dragged. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You're the daughter of a mother who I think was a waitress and father who worked in a thermostat factory.
0: Yeah, well, a fact he worked at um, Minneapolis Honeywell. They also made uh, Pentax cameras.
2: Okay, cool. And coming from that life. Having the amazing experience you had in your twenties, and now being—people say icon all the time—I don't think it's overstatement, but also famous. I just wonder what it feels like to be this well-known, this famous person, where it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like your personality wants to be famous. No, it's
0: not one or not one. I just I'm famous only. I mean I'm. It depends where I am.
2: Your face is on all of the walls in this, throughout this I whole can, building. I, can,
0: I mean, I can walk down most of America, down the streets of most of America, and they would have just... Oh, really? Have, yeah. I'm, I'm much more well-known in Europe... If I go to Italy, yes, I'm. <laughs> I can walk the streets and feel like I'm famous. It's like Patty, 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 come in and have some of my coffee, and then somebody will say, "No, Patty, over here, my coffee is better." <laughs> I don't think about that because I'm really work driven. Mm. I was like a rock and roll star in the '70s for a while, and I mean, I was in Europe. I was a bi- fairly big rock and roll star, mm-hmm. and uh, it was exciting, but it still didn't define me. I have always felt defined by. To When I was younger, partially by my relationships, you know, because they were important to me, because I'd be proud proud to be Robert Mapplethorpe's girlfriend or Sam Shepard's girlfriend and my husband's wife, you know. But the real definition of myself is my work. Yeah, it's exciting. I've sang in front of 250,000 people. It's exciting. I've stood with the Dalai Lama on my stage at Glastonbury, for over 150,000 people to sing happy birthday with him, with all those people. I've had a lot of exciting things happen in my life. They're wonderful, but they don't define me. What defines me is like the work that I do or the work that I'm working on, (laughs) When I'm working on. This notebook defines me more than any of that because this is my hopes and dreams and where my struggle is today. And also I'm just the way that I am. I never, you know, I'm pretty, uh, I liked where I came from. I'm happy with who I am. I don't mind what my appearance, you know, getting older, you know, it's just, yeah, I liked when I had dark hair better and had, you know, (laughs) you know, and didn't have this and that, but I'm happy with myself and uh, I'm just who I am. You know, I wear the often the same clothes on stage that I wear on the streets. And it's just like, I don't have any, you know, I have ways of navigating different different areas of my life, but um, I'm still just me, you know, and, uh, you know, in terms of like, it's got its little drawbacks. I mean, I don't have like, you know, sometimes if I'm in agitated mood on a Saturday and just want to go to a bookstore and there's like paparazzi taking pictures of me and I just say, are you serious? I got like greasy braids <laughs> and, you know, like pajama bottoms on and an old jacket. You know, it's like nobody's going to buy that picture. <laughs> and I really find it difficult to reconcile that people can write whatever they want about you and speculate if you're a celebrity, then you're open. You know, I don't have that. I don't suffer that as much as people that are more well-known, but I find that really wrong. You know, that your family or your whole, you know, if you're well-known, then you're like open season. I don't agree with that concept. Like, I'd never watch The Crown because... Those people really exist and they're still alive. And you're doing a film about people that are still alive, not because I like or uh, dislike them. I don't believe in that. Yeah. You know, people want to do, you know, a biopic of, you know, if I decided I wanted to make a film of my work, of my book, that would be one thing. People do any time I've ever been in anybody's biopic, it's so far away from who I am or how I'd be. Mm. And I just try to ignore it or the way people depict me. For instance, in the London Review of Books, to review a book of mine, a writer, a music writer, wrote one of the most scathing reviews. It was like 3,000 words or something of scathingness. It was called Ways of Being Pretentious. I bring this up because this is the kind of thing that I find really vile. Here it is, a very prestigious magazine London Review of Books that I respect and read and this guy went on this tangent he was reviewing two of my books he hardly said anything about the books he talked about how Robert Maplethorpe and I were so coked up uh, when we shot the cover of Wave and that's why I look like a coked out witch oh my god he claimed that I Sexually harassed him in the seventies, you know. The writer claimed that. Yeah, he claimed that that I was flirting with him and that it disturbed him for a long time. Uh, he claimed that uh, that I had done all these drugs, you know, so much cocaine. First of all, never could afford it. Second of all, not interested. I've never had a drug
2: problem. You say you're pretty straight laced, and that people don't believe you about that.
0: No, they. Uh, they. I was always really speedy. I've had tons of energy. So people thought I took speed because everybody in the late 60s, early 70s took speed. I never took it. I was so skinny. I weighed like 101 pounds and I was this tall. I was so skinny that I could not take speed. Nor was I interested in taking speed. I started smoking pot when I got into my Rastafarian period in 74 and smoked pot for a while. But with a bronchial condition, I couldn't smoke that much pot. But I enjoyed it. Mm. Had some hashish. I tried acid once with Robert, maybe twice. Too chemical. Hmm. Had peyote once, and that was really interesting. And I wrote a nice story. I've only been addicted to coffee. <laughs> and even coffee, when I became pregnant with my son, I went from drinking nine cups a day to zero in one day.
2: So this guy is writing this thing about you being coked up, and it's just he not just true. just went
0: on and on and on about so many things. And I thought, how does this... Speak of journalism in a, an important, you know, literary review. Mm-hmm. How is that? When did this happen? When people, and it's happened to me a few different times in prestigious places, mm. which always is uh, disappointing. Mm. People say that those kind of things to me all the time, or they get angry at me. They get angry at me because I say that Picasso was the greatest artist of the 20th century. Then who was, who had more impact? Yeah, I mean, are we going to someday say, oh, any of our people?
2: John Lennon was an asshole to his um, <laughs> people close to him.
0: But you know, John Lennon is one. Is I still mourn John Lennon? Right. He, he wrote Imagine. Like, <laughs> if we, if we, and Yoko helped him, yeah. <laughs> but it was more important than that. He wrote many great songs. He was a mind. He had a great mind. He understood things. He understood the absurdity of government. He understood. He was. I mean, he had an expansive mind that, you know, had he lived, he would have been somebody we could depend on, Mm -hmm. someone who could speak for us. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how he was in his personal life, well, I can remember when I was in my 20s, I was an I could be a real asshole. <laughs> Me and I too. I know it. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in the same way that people report about it because <laughs> they they don't even know the true asshole. They, <laughs> they think you know I was like you know strung out and on drugs and doing this and that and like you know that's not what I was doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'll tell you what I how I was an asshole. I was once mean to Karen Carpenter.
2: What did you What did you do?
0: I just like you know. It was just like I was mean to her because I just thought they were square and they weren't rock and roll, and I got to meet them, and I was really awful. I mean, I was young, but I was was like, you know, really like uh, I was on this thing about, you know, rock and roll had to be at this certain place, and Mm. poor Karen Carpenter. Oh, I I still feel bad about that, and I can never tell her I'm sorry. I didn't Mm. say anything hard. I was just just an asshole, Mm. you know. That's where I was an asshole, and I met her brother, Richard, I told him that. I don't even know if he remembers but I after, told she,
2: it after she died
0: oh yeah but i'm saying that the ways should i should my should my records be taken off the radio because i was mean to karen carpenter probably not but
2: <laughs> for the people who want to be the next patty smith like what can they be doing? no they can't be the they
0: have to be their own <laughs> i'm not a person like i said and i will say it over and over i am just a person who is common sense and is, is emotional. I'm not a politician. I'm not a lobbyist. I don't have the mentality. I am not structured for making change in those kind of ways, but some people are. And all the people that are good at what they do have to step up, you know, no matter what they do. If it's like, you know, to, to help find a cure or to help handicapped children, help children with autism, help, whatever your program to do, to step up. I feel like since also the pandemic, everyone's stepping down a little. They don't want to go back to work. They don't want to be in the office. Okay. But what do they want to do of quality? What, what do we want to do? How can we contribute? We're just all, I find that everywhere I go, things have like gotten less quality, or you have new entrepreneurs who are very greedy and generic. So it just—it's—it's it's just up to people that have the ability to speak out, who are you know politically tuned, you know, who have the stamina for that. It's all of us have to look and see how how we can contribute, but it also takes the rest of us to support those people
2: who in in the culture and the arts and racing, whatever it is, who, who, who gives you hope at the moment? Who do you admire?
0: I don't really think of things in terms of hope, you know, it's just, I think that's a lot to put on, you know, (laughs) I don't expect, you know, artists and poets or anyone to give me hope. Cesar Era, I want a new book out of him. He just put out a new book. It's a small masterpiece. It's awesome. It's everything I hope for, you know, and you know, you hope for, you know, a new film, a new performance. I'm a, (laughs) Not as easily amused as uh, Kurt Cobain might have been thinking of. I'm not totally easily amused, but I get happy really fast with some new work by someone or an undiscovered work. I love the work of other people, whether it's architecture or a garden or a loaf of bread or a poem. My daughter and I watched uh, the Enola Holmes movies, with Bobby Brown, she plays the imagined sister of of um, Sherlock Holmes such delightful little films. We just sat and I made a spaghetti and we watched um we watched those movies that have i mean basically her little message is you know the future is ours, the future's in our hands, you know, and she's riding off on her bicycle girl detective um, in the nineteenth century and uh you know, she's going to make her mark on the future. I love being alive, and I love all the things that people offer. They give us their imagination. And of course, there's the other side of what they take, what the oil companies are doing, and how they're burdening us and taxing us and, uh, and polluting our world. And, you know, it's just, there's so many things, you know, when I think about the other side of things, it can be, the injustice in our world is so the scales are really the injustice is right now on the winning side, which is heartbreaking, but you know, will prevail. There's that film, um, Night of the Hunter. Did you ever see that? Mm-hmm. It's an awesome film. It's the only film that Charles Lawton directed and it's a masterpiece. Lillian Gish is in it and, uh, Robert Mitchum plays a bad country priest. It's just beautifully shot. The whole thing is beautiful. At the end of it, you know, Lillian Gish is saying, you know, she's looking at the world and it's just filled with corruption and so much evil. And the little children, the poor little countryside children are singing a little hymn and and she's saying, God bless the children. She goes, they endure, they endure, you know, we do.
2: It's the end of the world and I feel fine. <laughs>
0: Well, no, it's the end of the world as we know it.
2: As we know it's and I feel important, fun. important, <laughs> oh, fine.
0: But then there's all, always, of course, hooray, I wake from yesterday. Love that.
2: I think that's a perfect place to end it. So okay. thank you very much, Patty. Thank you for all your amazing contributions <laughs> to art and culture. And oh, thanks. Thank you for joining me in this conversation.
1: Thank you. You can find Patty Smith on Substack, where she shares videos and writing and has serialized part of a book at pattysmith.substack.com. That's P-A-T-T-I smith.substack.com. I I highly recommend you check it out. See you next time. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com read.substack.com